Bastards from Quentin Tarantino. Yes, bastards, because that's how it's spelled. That makes it unique and interesting. <laughs> you can't spell things right. I read the script, and uh, that's not the only word that Tarantino doesn't know how to spell. He apparently doesn't have a spell checker on, on Final Draft or whatever. He It looks like he wrote it on a typewriter. It's, he it's probably so did, because that's indie and outside of the corporate Hollywood system, man. You can't spell things correctly or you're a sellout. He's also a multi-millionaire and probably has a personal assistant who should spell check it before the script leaks on the internet. Specifically spells things incorrectly or even in the opening of Kill Bill will have things like chapter two and then the number one next to it and he circles it to call attention to it because that's how much of a smug bastard he is. <laughs> Look how different I'm being. Yeah, no, but uh, like poor grammar. Uh, so that you don't understand the sentence and you have to read it twice to understand what's going on in the scene. That's not indie, that's just bad at English. Right. Uh, essentially doing leap speak <laughs> off of a computer. This is a good movie. I enjoy the hell out of this movie. Um, people remember the beginning of this movie as the scene uh, where, where Hans Landa uh, interviews the French dude and it goes on for like 15 minutes, but it's so... Riveting. Uh, riveting, tense, exciting, that, you know, you can't look away, and it's fantastic. But that is not the beginning of the film. The beginning of the film is the title card, and then, like, five minutes of credits with just text over a black screen and music. It's a weird combination of the Good, Bad, and the Ugly theme yeah, with, with an old classical song that I think is Dance Macabre, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's very weird, and... Honestly, I'm bored. Like, I don't like sitting through credits like that. I think that's another quirky thing that he does to be different and show what not to worry is that he's going to give everyone credit. You're going to sit and watch the names and nothing else and give those people their due. Before the movie, this is what you're paying. Your respects to them, not walking out of the theater after when all the names are rolling. And it bugs the hell out of me. It again comes across. I see why someone would do that, but it comes across as just being smug and pretentious. It's sort of true, except that it'll be true when I watch it in the theater the one time, but every subsequent time I watch the film, I'm not going to see any of the credits. Right. You, what you should do, if you want right. people to see these things, is you should have something interesting happening while the credits are at the very least, do pull a David Fincher and do some crazy thing with the credits where like it's all scratchy and whatever, like Seven, or the text is floating in front of buildings like in Panic Room, or something. Like, right. Do something. Not yellow text on a black screen. I have always found the credits at the beginning of a film boring. And uh, even when I was a child, and I, th I feel like actually it's a childish thing to have a short attention span and not want to uh, sit and watch the credits. Um, so maybe I should uh, grow up yeah, a grow little bit and accept it. Especially because I do work in this business and I do, uh, Imagine you know, if that was your name up there. I know. You're just waiting. Oh. I know those people. And, and I sit through the end credits of, of shows that I've worked on waiting for my name. And then I get up and leave. But, uh, <laughs> Son of a bitch. Yeah. But no, no, no. I do appreciate that. And every once in a while I will see someone credited that I recognize. I'm like, oh, I know that guy. He's a dick. Because <laughs> I don't like anybody. Apparently. I think that's the theme to take away. <laughs> yes. Exactly. But I understand the, the notion of crediting, giving credit where credit is due as well as should. 
but uh, do something while that's yeah. happening. Engage the viewer. Um, but it does, after that, go into what people remember as one of the best scenes, I feel. It's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, I mean, the movie, the movie could have stopped after that interrogation scene. I still would have been like, give it the Oscar. Like, the German guy, best actor, the best writing by Tarantino. I, yeah. I, I loved that scene. And I don't think anybody, uh, nobody in their right mind wouldn't like that scene. Right. And the writing and the performances really carry it and make it not feel like the 15 minutes or whatever it is of two guys talking in very static shots. There's not a lot of interesting camera work that, you know, might come in either later in the movie or other Tarantino movies. This just is about them talking and you being riveted on what they're saying and their performances. I'll give credit to Robert Richardson, the cinematographer, and David Wasco, who I have to admit, I had to look up his name. <laughs> he's the production designer. But the production designer. They did a fantastic job. They, they realized this is a location they're going to be in for 15 minutes, and which is an exceedingly long time for a film, and it looks perfect. Like There's all of these little details that you probably wouldn't even notice, but are there, and the, the lighting is exactly like the right mood i mean there's the 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 spotlights like you know blasting that table and it's bouncing up and reflecting into their faces and occasionally it sort of stands out when someone reaches across the table right you can their hand like glows it's a little less natural than a farmhouse but i think it adds to the interrogation scene the tense uh feeling the film noir almost you know aspect <laughs> i think everything's I, like I think a film everything noir. is a film noir but i do think that the the high contrast. I think in all three of these you you've mentioned this film is like a film noir. Exactly. I like that they recognized they were going to be spending a lot of time, and so they took their time to uh, to make it look uh, exactly correct. Now, the prop uh, master, whose name I don't know, for some reason gave Hans Landa the largest pipe <laughs> in yeah, the world. Yeah, uh, his scrimshaw pipe or whatever it is <laughs> is a bit... Peculiar. I don't know if they were adding just to the character being quirky or if it was specifically supposed to look like Sherlock Holmes's pipe since he is a detective. He's looking for it people. May, it may even be period correct. Like, it's possible that we just, it, they, people did smoke those ridiculous pipes. It looks like a conscious decision. <laughs> so again, since he's supposed to be very deductive and intelligent and looking for people, I'm going to say they added a little bit of Sherlock Holmes in. For fun. Yeah. And and I feel like that's one minor critique of that scene is that I, I think... That sticks out. I think everyone laughs at that the first time they see it. Like, right. when I saw it in the theater, the, the whole theater chuckled. And, and you know, maybe that's intentional to break the tension for just a moment, because uh, then it gets really super tense. Um, but, I, you know, one little thing that it stands out greatly because the rest of the scene is nearly perfect. Right. And, yeah. again, starting off the movie with that scene... I had great hopes for the rest of it. I don't know that it actually delivered. <laughs> I think there are parts that we fast forward through, either in rewatching it or in uh, in our recollection of it. But I, I don't think that the film is a failure by any stretch. No, I don't think so. It's just, it feels disjointed. Usually with Quentin Tarantino cutting between storylines, having the title cards between them, these kind of reflective elements that take you out of it, it's for either a reason or the storylines come together, they merge at some point. But I think that the Inglorious Bastards, the titular characters, just don't have enough screen time and we end up spending so much with Shoshana and her story with the Lieutenant Zoller uh, that I just was not interested in. Yeah, it, the film should have been called Inglorious Bastards and Shoshana. 
it would have been a better title. Well, it More wouldn't accurate. have been a better title. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I had heard that initially this was supposed to be a, a, a miniseries, um, and perhaps she would have had her own episode or two, and maybe that would have changed the way we felt about the pacing. But as it stands, the two stories seem so unrelated to each other. Uh, you could One could even argue that Londa is the main character, because he's the... He's in every story. He's in every. He's not in every scene, but every scene eventually leads to his appearance. Even in the basement, after everybody's shot and dead, yeah. he shows up at the basement, yeah. and he's the uh, impetus for everything. It's not entirely clear, but uh, when he interrogates Shoshana at the cafe, he by ordering milk and a lot of sort of meaningful glances, it seems like he might know who she is, and yet he lets her live. So perhaps letting her live was part of his elaborate plan to kill Hitler and defect to the Americans. He certainly lets the uh, the bastards live in the theater, and then and again makes the you know decision. He's sort of the driving force. You could argue he's the main character of the film, even if he's not the movie star that Brad Pitt is. Right, and I think that's why he correctly got the Academy Award for the role. But I still feel like the disjointed nature is the biggest yeah problem with the film. When we get to Shoshana's story, it, it opens with the interrogation of the French dude. Then we see a, a couple of scenes with the bastards. And then it gets to Shoshana in front of the movie theater where she meets Zoller. And up to that point, it's about 40 minutes in, and we've had four scenes. Yeah. So each scene averages out to about 10 minutes, which is a ridiculously long time for a scene in a modern American film. And yet, the movie seems like it's going at a breakneck pace. It seems really fast. It's really exciting. You're really interested in everything. Uh, and then she shows up and the movie just grinds to a halt. And yes. you just don't care. It's just awkward with her and Zoller, the relationship between them. And it's meant to be, but it still doesn't make it any more fun to watch or interesting. It almost feels like, a, like a, any romantic comedy where the guy's awkward and weird and the girl is not attracted to him at first, but eventually she softens to him. Like, right. this this could star Justin Long and Drew Barrymore uh, if, if Justin Long were a Nazi. Which I think he might be. In real life, <laughs> yeah. I've heard that elsewhere. That's a thing now. Um, no, I think that it does come across awkward and it just gets worse the way it goes. I could see it hitting the classic structure of in the you know, second act, her coming around or maybe thinking more fondly of him or him doing something to win her over her breaking a smile but when she doesn't it just feels more awkward and then the scene where he essentially forces himself into the projection room feels out of nowhere yeah there's no build-up to that he just suddenly he's crazy and granted like he's a nazi and he's killed several americans and so like he's not a good guy but her whole plot line uh between her and zoller is just so boring and the entire time you just want to get back to the bastards. Yeah, I think that they, again, are supposed to be the main draw. And in the trailers, we saw them talking about all the crazy stuff they were going to do to have the Nazis fear them. And then Hitler saying, nine, nine, nine. That is literally the actual cut in the movie. Like, <laughs> they go, oh, it starts the second scene with Aldo telling them that they're going to have the Nazis fear them and think that they're going to disembowel them. Then there is a shot of Eli Roth in the movie who does nothing but torture porn movies like Hostel, Teristas, Cabin Fever. Cabin Fever, these movies where all he does is say, okay, how many fake body parts do we have and how real can <laughs> we make it? 
construct a plot around that. <laughs> if you can call them plots, really. So you see you him. Can't. Yeah. You see him off the corner of uh, Brad Pitt when he's delivering a speech. You're like, oh man, there's going to be some torture in this movie. The next scene, they are literally scalping. I think Quentin Tarantino's in the background pulling the scalp off of a, a Nazi. That is the extent of the horrifying acts that we see them do. It's riveting to see the exchange between Brad Pitt and then the Nazi sergeant, whoever is he's trying to convince to show him on the map. And he's threatening him with the bear Jew to come out and beat him with a club. And that is a horrifying way to go. But still, they're like, oh no, he's going to beat you with a club. He comes out and it is pretty graphic, the first two shots of him getting hit in the skull. But that's about it. I was imagining Nazis coming along and finding these strung up remains from trees with their guts splayed open or propped up on tables as if they were playing poker but with no <laughs> skin on their faces. Like, I was waiting for Eli Roth to come and say, you know what we should do. This is an oddly specific like, expectation you I'm saying that any of these things would be better than what they do, which is make up rumors about how horrifying they are, and then, oh yeah, he beats a guy with a bat. <laughs> and they do take scalps. I'll give them, that's, you know, interesting. And from a 1940s perspective, like, how would you do that? Oh, you violated a dead body once it was already dead? I'm curious uh, as to what happened to the scalps, by the way. Like, they're not carrying them around like uh, Boba Fett with uh, Wookiee scalps. Like, they're just... And they don't have backpacks. <laughs> right, it's... <laughs> Where are the scalps, is what I want to... They each owe a hundred. <laughs> That's true. They set that up, and we don't see them paying them off. Did they drop them in a bag? These might have been cut, or they just didn't get around to filming them, but... They were just, not in the scripts. It just comes across as, again, disjointed, and me wanting to see more, them not delivering it, them telling us about these exploits, or us hearing from the Nazis or Hitler about how scary they are, and us not being shown. I realize that they are trying to create boogeymen, essentially, and rumors amongst the Nazis so that they will fear them, but we should still see a few examples of the few points that are based in reality, and not just them... Oh, we shot some guys that were in... We dressed up like Nazis and then shot the guys in the road. <laughs> That's not horrifying. And more to the point, like, if all we're doing is hearing about these stories, the Nazis are only hearing the stories, you're making us identify with the Nazis. I don't know if that's really the goal here with this film. I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> Tarantino was calling you a Nazi. If you're not him, you're a Nazi. Well, why didn't he cast Justin Long in the film? That's true. also a well-known Nazi. I have, I have heard that several times, actually. <laughs> Just the log is going to sue us. So, I think really my main criticism is that from the trailers, I thought these were all going to be flushed out scenes that were connected, when really, no, they just took the best shots of each scene, put them together, and then I went, oh, yeah, that is the way it happened. <laughs> them threatening to beat them with a club, and then Hitler going, nine, nine, nine. Is Shoshana even in? I think the shot of her running is in the trailer. I'm not sure if there's anything else of her in the trailer. Yeah, they could have cut her entire storyline. I would have been fine with that. that. That's actually beyond the disjointedness. I, I wouldn't even. I don't know if disjointed is quite the right word because that would imply that it's confusing. Like it's just a long section that is boring, and then more more problematic to me is that in the end, both plans succeed independent of each other. Right. There was no effect. Uh, literally, literally, even to the point of when they're shooting everybody, they don't seem to notice that the building is on fire, which is so far beyond, like, the building is on fire. I'm going to say they they didn't care. But A, they thought, hey, maybe somebody else on my team set it on fire. Good job. <laughs> B, hey, this is going really great. I just killed Hitler. 
Then I killed a bunch of other people. Then I went back to Hitler and killed him again, <laughs> just to make sure. So the killing him with the guns, killing him with the explosive strap at their legs, and the building burning down, I don't think they thought, hey, maybe we have too many times killing Hitler. <laughs> by that point in the movie, they've diverged so much from history that it is just, again, that torture porn fantasy land of Jewish redemption, you know? It feels like this is alternate reality for fun and uh, satisfaction, more so than trying to make sense at that point. They've gone out, they've said, yes, we're going to go off the rails here. And up to that point, I thought, oh, maybe they're going to get caught or Hitler's going to make it out, but they'll blow up the theater and something a little more. This may have happened, but no, they went all out and said, yeah, we're not going for anything kind of accurate. It would just feel really good to watch this and for these characters to kill him, kill him again, blow him up, burn him. <laughs> that will make us all feel really much better. But they don't even glance at it. Like, but they also didn't seem to make any actions to take the bombs off of their legs. Which they, also they had already chucked in and said, you know what, we're not getting out of this. I'm gonna ride it, ride the bomb, waving my hat uh, all the way in. <laughs> that level of commitment. Uh, movie, they would not have been aware of that film. They, they would not have. <laughs> wouldn't still, be made for another fifteen years. Right. So. <laughs> Either way, they have bombs strapped to their legs. They're not worried about the fire, is what I'm saying. Me, personally, I would have been like, you know, I, I signed up for a suicide mission, but I don't want the bombs on my shins. <laughs> I'm fine with the bomb killing me with, you know, I'll set it over there. Shrapnel will get me, but not the shrapnel of my feet. <laughs> That's just more disconcerting to me. And yet that, even again, they're not concerned about because they're so locked in on their goal. See, that also bothers me. I... I... I think we're supposed to regard them as these heroes that sacrificed their lives. But sacrificing your life to complete the mission or whatever, that's heroic and valid and, and whatnot. But if it's not actually necessary to sacrifice your life in order to complete the mission, they could have... The building was on fire, they shot Hitler, they shot Goebbels. They could have taken off the bombs and just thrown it into the crowd and walked away and then like lit a cigarette as the building exploded behind them. Like... Why did they not do... Like, I, that seems like also a good idea to me. And then you can kill Hitler several times over and have a ticker tape parade when you get home. See, that seems like the best of both worlds. I think this was specifically not going for that. They were, we were not supposed to regard them as heroic. This was almost a base, you know, mad rape of Hitler. Like, let's kill him and rape him. Like, not to be regarded as heroes, but to really feel much better in a base kind of way about ourselves, like a deep, dark way is what this is tapping into. But if it's supposed to make us feel better, doesn't that mean that they are heroes? No, because you can feel better about something you're not proud of, like raping Hitler and then killing him <laughs> three times. I threw in the rape part to get across kind of the base, low end you, of... You don't think Tarantino expects you to be proud of these guys? No, I do not. You think that's part of it? Okay. That's... Right. I think that they are bastards, and we're not... They're inglorious! There is no glory here! See, it's I in the title! I feel... <laughs> it's possible that that's why it's titled that way, and maybe that's even why it's misspelled. But I feel like uh, uh, Truffaut was right in the sense that he said anytime you film anything, you're going to make it seem uh, glorious. Right. Um, I don't know if that's the word that he used, but... He probably didn't. If he did, then Quentin Tarantino was specifically calling him out and saying, no. But I disagree, sir. I disagree with you because in watching it, I was like, these guys are awesome. And yes, I thought Christoph Wentz, uh, the Lambda was awesome. We didn't think he was awesome. He was up Nazis. He was, I, I do love Justin Long. 
But I don't think he's a hero. No, I think he's the bad guy. I think and he's yet, the protagonist. He's the one that ends the ends the war. He is responsible for the death of Hitler. He wants a ticker tape parade. He is the hero. It'd be interesting if he did get a ticker tape parade in the world of this film. Like, right. Cover, wearing his bangs long. <laughs> I just because the swastika. Ticker tape parade, riding in a car with that. I was imagining a hat. I think once we leave Aldo and them, and then we see Shoshana, and it's boring and drags on too long and feels out of place. It looks like like someone took the yellow filter off of Amelie so we could watch it on on a normal screen. Exactly. And there were Nazis. Less Nazis than Amelie. But I think once we... I think Audrey Tattoo is also a Nazi. That's... I I would believe that as well. (laughs) I think once we see Magneto show up, or Michael Fassbender... Uh, and the British come in with their very large rooms. Yeah, let's let's not forget Mike Myers is in this right film. now. Well, the the only actor in this film who is not playing the nationality that he I was actually say, is. If you're gonna have a British character, Mike Myers is playing. <laughs> he could he could have they could have said let's have him play a Canadian officer. Right, there were Canadians and, in World War II. Yeah, and the, and they were under the, the the they were in the Royal Army at the time because they were part of the, the British Empire. But instead, he has this. I don't know enough about accents. Perhaps it's actually an accurate accent. You know what? Actually, maybe you just talked yourself out of it. He could be wearing a Canadian Royal British Army If he uniform. is, and I don't know how to find this out, but if he is, suddenly I love the fact that Mike Myers is yeah, in this movie. That would make it much better. But I think the scene with him and Michael Fassbender is very good introduction to bringing the British in. You have all the pomp and civility that you imagine with them, the James Bond-esque suaveness and And I, I think one of, one of Tarantino's uh, best uh, abilities is to surprise you. I had no idea that was coming. Like, I thought, I like, I saw the title card, I was like, okay, we're going back to the bastards, they're going to be doing some bastardly things ingloriously. And uh, instead, British dudes. Mike Myers is a little bit distracting, and then, like, there's uh, Churchill. Churchill in the corner, not saying anything. He has, like, two lines or something, yep. and there's a giant map. And uh, Mike Myers is not doing a Scottish accent, which is really distracting. <laughs> right. No, I think it was uh, great to get back to kind of the level of magnetism that we get from the bastard storyline. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are listening to this instead of watching the video that we didn't record, I made a funny face because he said magnetism with regard to the scene with Mike Myers. Michael Fassbender, he's magnetic personality. You like <laughs> watching him? He plays Magneto. Right. <laughs> Worth it. All right. So once he meets up with the bastards, I still feel that action has picked back up. We're finally getting somewhere, and uh, the movie is getting back on track. And again, scenes that go on. I don't know how long the basement scene is, but it's humongously long, 15 minutes or something. And yet you're like, wow, why? You know, I'm riveted. I can't look away. The, you know, it's over here and it's over there. And, that you know, they get rid of the obnoxious drunk German and then... Uh, the the German officer comes over and he's all evil and stuff and uh, then See, then there's everybody shoots everybody and then there's a Mexican standoff which is great Tarantino stuff and like that whole sequence fantastic I really like that sequence with the basement bar and Diane Kruger playing the German actress after I watched it I thought that was entirely unnecessary <laughs> and the second time I watched it I went no that was really <laughs> unnecessary so it's interesting to get them into that place with all the intrigue and the covert operations with him having to fake explain his accent. All of the things are very interesting, but it still just brought up the question, why were they meeting in a bar? 
Like, they call it out in the film, and they say, this is the worst tactical place to ever go in. He says, oh, well, she picked it. And my question is, why are you following it? Go in there and ask her to come out. Literally have one of the Germans say, oh, your car is here. Or <laughs> send in a note, do anything, but go into the basement. They're like, this is the worst tactical decision ever made. And it's like, yes, it is. And they walk right into it. They're like, well, why did we pick it? We needed someplace that would be isolated. They're in an empty, abandoned <laughs> building. All of France has been bombed out. In some fairness... She's a famous movie star, and anywhere she goes, even if there is not a guard on every corner, she's a famous movie star, and people will notice her walking around. And if she walks into a... If someone happens to notice, you know, it'd be like if, if you're in the middle of a war and Angelina Jolie is just walking along the street by herself and goes into an empty building, you'd be like, what is going on in there? I don't think they had TMZ back then. So, again, I think Angelina Jolie could get away for five minutes, but don't have her walk into the abandoned building, steal a Nazi car the way they got any of the uniforms, and have her walk along the street and then pick her up and say, or in front of her apartment. They're, since they're trying to play it above board, they could go someplace and get her, just not someplace in a basement that is a kill box that they have no way to get out of. So, no, it, again, she doesn't, apparently, is because it, it does seem like a tactical decision that almost anyone could realize is a bad idea, right. but actresses are dumb. They try and Which play it off that way, but I say they are all dumb for following it. Just say, you know what, we're in fact, re revising this plan. German-speaking guy, go in there and tell her her ride's here. She has to come out. You could also argue if she's been a spy this whole time and has managed to not get killed by the Nazis, uh, she's reasonably smart. <laughs> Yeah. And should have noticed that this is a bad idea. So yes, going into the basement may not have been the best plan, but once they're there, and, in, and at a certain point, one of the, the, one of the Germans, one of the good Germans is like, hey, let's Leave. get out of here. And they're like, yeah, there's going to be suspicious. So like they do address that, why they don't just take off. And from there, everything sort of makes sense in the context of once you're there, Sort of, yeah, you sort of follow it. There seem to be two or three and points where they could have avoided this, not going in there, telling someone to go in and get her. They say, oh, it would look weird if we, I waited for you in a bar and then we left. They're a bunch of drunk people. They wouldn't notice. The SS officer would, but they didn't know he was there and he only hears things because he's in the apparently dungeon <laughs> portion of the back of the bar. Every bar I've been to has a little book corner where you can sit quietly and drink your beer. I don't know what bars you go to. That's a normal thing in Germany, I think. <laughs> so, it is interesting, and it sets up, again, where Michael Fassman is having to explain away things, but when I looked at it in a bigger scene, I, I thought, that was unnecessary. I, I would argue, and I am arguing, that it's a refrigerator question. You know, you, you watch it the first time, you don't notice, maybe the second or third time. You might notice, you're driving home, you, you're thinking about, oh, what a great movie that was, and as you're reaching into the fridge to uh, pull out some orange juice, you think, wait a second. Why did they get on the bar in the first place? And yes, it's a flaw, but like, if it takes you that, if it doesn't take you out of the movie in the watching of it, I will be more forgiving of it. And the fact that it leads to this really awesome scene that's super exciting, and and then it puts them in you know great peril, so that subsequent scenes are more exciting. Like I forgive it. Right, and as good as the basement scene is for the tension and the drama that it creates with this spy intrigue there's still even not just 
why did they go in there, but there are some tactical decisions they make inside that kind of call it into question where Stieglitz also points the gun at the SS soldiers' testicles. And I remember thinking, like, that's not going to prevent him from pulling the trigger <laughs> on Magneto here, maybe put it to his heart or chest, back of his head, under his chin. I realize maybe the people behind them would notice it, but the guy behind the bar is already reaching for a shotgun. At this point, Stieglitz can just go crazy. We were worried about him. Oh, will he go off and just kill everyone? Now's the, probably the time to do that, or very close to it. I'm like, not entirely sure if we ever see him kill anybody. We, see, we he, have the little voiceover where it describes that he did in the past. Yeah. But uh, we see him sharpening his knife. Doesn't use it. We see him shoot the car full of Nazis when they wear the oh, Nazi outfit. Oh, he's one of them. He Which does... is the le I, I, I would say that that scene is the least effective scene of the bastards doing anything. They're, right. they're literally just standing there. They lift their guns. They look kind of bored when they're shooting. Right, but he does shoot the SS officer in the testicles, and then I believe when the officer falls, he has a, uh, his knife in the he back of the stabbing. skull. So he kills him, but he doesn't do it in a way to prevent... Like I was expecting him to just go... Hulk out on everyone, shoot him, shoot the other, the woman first, you know, just like lay waste all these people because he's finally unchained, but he shoots them and then the entire other table stands up and just starts shooting them like crazy style. They were just drinking. These people are still dressed like German officers just because one of them got shot. Like, how do they know the SS soldier wasn't the one that was a spy and uncovered for some reason? Or maybe he grabbed the woman's breast and they're just <laughs> shooting him out of honor. Like, they have very little information and yet start just executing everyone. Right. They go nuts. Now, maybe that's a fog of war thing that uh, I hear gunfire, I start shooting. But even then, like, were they drunk and they had their guns at their sides? Like, and they had machine guns. Are you allowed to, hey, I'm taking the night off. We're all going to go get drunk. Don't forget your machine gun. <laughs> uh, maybe the rules were a little looser back then because they're in enemy They're in France, you know. Yeah, but they were... But they set the machine guns over by the bar at the very least. They I could did, see yeah. them having sidearms still just because it's part of the uniform, I think. I, but I think when you're on leave, and it, it's occupied, like they, in theory, have it pretty much under control. I think if you're on leave, I don't think you get to take your gun with you. All right. I'm I not think, sure. I'm going to go ahead and say... The U.S., I will believe you, but uh, <laughs> Germans were a little more militaristic and a little, as far as them just killing, they're like, oh, wait, blood time. <laughs> jump at it. Just, the bloodlust comes out, so. And so they just open fire, and it is sort of, they're just shooting everyone simultaneously. Yeah, they, they don't know anything about it, and a uh, crazy German guy, he pulls out his knife. Why does he not stab other Germans? Like, he's, like, repeatedly killing this guy like he's Hitler. Like, I want to kill Hitler three times. And instead he's wasting his, his uh, energy on one dude. Um, doesn't really seem like the uh, best plan. Yeah, it, some of the execution just wasn't great. I think overall the scene is very good, entertaining, kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat with the tension. But when, if you were to go play-by-play play on who shot who... Some of it falls apart. Yeah. Yeah, that whole scene, it's hard. It's not clear who's shooting who. and uh, But I'll accept that in this case, in so many movies they use an excuse of, oh, it's uh, you, you don't know what's going on. Everything's changing quickly. And so it's hard to tell what's going on and we're mimicking that. Well, most of the time, if it's Jason Bourne, he does know what's going on. And it should be clear who he's punching and kicking. But in this case, I can sort of forgive the I don't know who shot who. Because I, I do feel like this, that's actually sort of an accurate portrayal. 
And then uh, another sort of small plot hole in this is uh, she, you know, they, she kills uh, the Wilhelm. father, of, uh, poor Wilhelm, and makes Max uh, an orphan. Uh, but then they, the scene cuts away. So we don't know exactly how she got out of there. Presumably they carried her. But she leaves the note, which I understand. Like, you forget about that because right. it was an exciting moment. But she also left her shoe. And she has one high heel shoe on and then one not on. And I feel like you might notice that. Yeah, I was thinking it, uh, I remember when I saw it, I thought, oh, maybe it was her shot leg and like, oh, it's throbbing or in shock, you can't really feel it. But then he puts it on her other good foot in the theater. When Hans Landa puts yeah, it on her foot. W the one that's not in the cast and puts it on there and that proves it. So yeah, I feel like maybe she could have thought of that or would have grabbed it out of just utility. And honestly, the note sort of, does everything that is sort of necessary in that scene. And, and it really, like, people make fun of Tarantino's foot fetish, but, like, this really seems to be that. Because when he tells her to reach into her, his bag and pull something out, and it's the shoe, and, and uh, etc. She could have pulled out the notes, and it says her name, and it has, to Wilhelm for your son Max or some such. Right. Like, it's very specific to that scene, and it's clear that it's her. Like, she's just as caught with that note as she is with the shoe. I think it... He only, only wanted to have it close up on her foot. I think it not only plays to his foot fetish, it brings in a little Cinderella-esque nature to it again with movies being referred to all over the place. There's even in the game Mickey Mouse, I think. The card game. Do they start with Mickey Mouse or no? They just have... Oh, I think Mickey Mouse is on someone's head. Yeah, so they even have, again, references to Mickey Mouse or King Kong in the card game they're playing. So Which, this could be a Cinderella. I'm going to embarrass plan. you as someone who went four years of film school and studies, watches movies all the time. Somehow, this was the first time you noticed that King Kong is a racial allegory. I went with religious allegory always on King Kong is Jesus. He, was did did uh, did Jesus come from the jungle in chains? Uh, Jesus sure. was a king in his own area, and then he's brought in in chains. I think even the uh, they tie him up on a big T, like King no. Kong is on a large T-like cross. No, the chains go to the ground. He can wave his arms around. Then, <laughs> just like Jesus, he climbs the Empire State Building. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the. So that's the course of events. I missed the. Uh... I you know I would in film school if you if you are assigned to watch a film and you can't think of anything else the easiest paper to write is so and so is Jesus in purgatory and that any you can, you can argue that for just about any film so I will believe you but still it's kind of obvious. he's covered in black fur they take him from in, the jungle they take him from the jungle they bring him in chains on a boat. Oh, and then I they think... force him to, to, to uh, they, they humiliate him for white people's amusement. Like, it was pretty obviously a slave uh, metaphor. I think when... Also, he fights dinosaurs, which I believe is accurate yeah, no, for it's... what happens in Africa. Well, in the 1600s, yeah. Of course. Uh, I think when he spelled it out in the three sentences of, do I come from the jungle uh, on a boat to America, <laughs> it was not fortuitous for me. I was like, wait a minute, he's talking about <laughs> slaves here. And King Kong. But then he even says, am I the uh, Negro experience in America or of slavery? And they're like, no. Which, honestly, the next time I play that game, I'm going to write the Negro experience yes. in America. Yeah. When I made that connection, I'm like, wait, that is what King Kong is about. And then I was like, they should say, yes, that's what you're an allegory for. But actually, it says King Kong on your head. <laughs> that would have been an awesome ending for that game. So... 
the basement scene, the interrogation scene, and... The final negotiation, I feel like, lives up to uh, those two scenes as well, between Brad Pitt and... Uh, and Christoph Waltz. Uh, Christoph Waltz. That, that whole, uh, where they're making the deal over whether they're going to let the Nazis die or not, I thought that was a really quality scene, especially with uh, Ryan from The Office um, sort of making funny faces the whole time. Yeah, he came across as a little light on a comedic relief, but he did a serviceable job. So I agree those are the three best scenes, and then a lot of the other ones are more forgettable. Uh, I think Shoshana scenes are, in my mind, entirely forgettable. But the scene where uh, Londa interrogates Shoshana at the coffee place is really interesting and, and sort of frightening when, when she realizes who it is and we're not sure if he recognizes her or not. And he orders milk, uh, but does he know that she grew up on a milk farm? And things of that sort uh, are, even though it's not, it doesn't stand out in your mind while you're watching it, it's pretty good. And most of the stuff with the bastards... Uh, when they're interrogating the Nazis, um, and when they are arguing with her, with Marlene Dietrich in the in the vet's office, those are all good scenes. And it's just that those three scenes that we pointed out are fantastic scenes. Right. So no, I don't think the, I don't think that makes the rest of it bad. It just no, means, it just doesn't hold up to the high points of those. Yeah. Ones. Every film right. is going to have scenes that are better than others. I think uh, another interesting point is some of the filmic self-referential things. There's. Magneto refers to a bunch of the film industry and business to kind of get him the job from Winston Churchill. I do wonder how much of that scene makes sense when he says Louis B. Mayer is not his opposite number. He thinks of himself as David O. Selznick. Does that mean anything to someone who didn't go to film school? Like They the may know them as names from the past or have never heard of them, but it, it's supposed to show how adept he is at film knowledge that he can... While it does convey, yes, he knows a lot about crazy stuff, it doesn't tell you anything about Goebbels unless you know who those two guys are. Uh, like, you might know... A normal person might know Mayer because of MGM, but David O. Selznick, unless you're into old films, doesn't mean anything. It works in that this a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies are movies about movies. They have the reflexive title cards and things that pull you out of it on purpose because he's being cheeky. But this one, I think, in particular... Goes really far into that. Right. This one, I think, there's other interesting points, such as Shoshana, as much as we don't like her, is trying to kill them using film nitrate films, which are very combustible. She's literally ending World War II with film. <laughs> right. And not only that, they have the movies they're talking about uh, up on the marquee and different elements bringing those in. But it's kind of saying, hey, look, we're killing Hitler with film, using the actual physical medium as the incendiary device, and I'm making a film rewriting history to where we get to kill Hitler. Three times over. <laughs> so it's kind of self-referential in that structure of saying, look, I'm using a film to kill Hitler, just like when Tarantino even, is with this whole project. Even with the bastards, there's a certain point where Aldo says, watching Donnie beat Nazis with a baseball bat is as close as we get to watching movies. And so again, they're killing Nazis with movies. Like that's this whole movie is... is about Killing, killing Nazis. Nazis with a movie. And so it, it, it almost, I, I kind of feel like, is self-aggrandizing, even more so than we've already pointed out, to suggest that a film is that uh, powerful or important, as opposed to, say, the, you know, however many thousands of guys that stormed the beaches at, at D-Day, I feel like they did a little bit more towards what? ending the Nazi reign kidding me? than the films. 
history is rewritten by the victors in their movies. So we get to now <laughs> say this movie single-handedly killed Hitler for our future children. And we'll say point to this as a historical documentary. <laughs> well, that's the best we can hope for. <laughs> right, now. And, and I, all of that is interesting and exciting, even though there's a couple of little plot holes. And then we cut back to uh, Shoshana and David Bowie is playing. So it, it's, it's shot like a 70s French movie and it's playing 80s David Bowie music. It, it really goes weird here with the use of color and her actions. It comes across experimental. It, yeah, it doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. It does fit with Tarantino's uh, oeuvre, I think right. is the word. He, and he, so, like, it, it fits within it. If you were watching a, a Tarantino marathon, like, you wouldn't notice. But in this film, it does sort of, like, pop in a way that well, is inappropriate. He did use the yellow titles for Stieglitz and other things that were very 70s True. exploitation film, and he uses Samuel Jackson does the voiceover to further that note. There's but some I, heavy metal music at certain points that is right. not so, time period appropriate. He brings in 70s exploitation films because I think he's trying for a uh, to further the Jew exploitationness of this, in that it is this, you know, kind of the way black exploitation movies were shaft, you know, taking down honkies, and it's this, like, <laughs> we've been repressed for years, and this is our way of feeling like we have a champion, and, you know, really feeling this catharsis of, like, yes, finally we get our turn. So that's what I feel like this whole movie is for. So the 70s nature does help, but Shoshana putting on the war paint and the David Bowie are not 70s like exploitation. They, it just comes across as like more 60s experimental, not quite new wave, but something modernist that wasn't part of the 70s exploitation note. So it's now a third or fourth or fifth genre type that's <laughs> jutting in there and sticks out for those scenes. Yeah, and and there's also little problems in the continuing that theme of anytime Shoshana's uh, around, the movie goes downhill. When they're in the theater, and uh, we're not sure if, if Hans is going to arrest them or like because their plan is so transparent that he laughs out loud almost to the point where it looks like he's breaking character. It, it you know, it, there's some tension there, but you're also like, so what? She's still going to burn the building down, you know? Like it, th there's no real uh, danger, even if their plan is foiled completely. She's still going to kill all of them. I didn't think I was that sure in her plan because I was like, yeah, I, I know nitrate film burns, but I don't know that it actually combusts to take out, you know, like, I thought... Oh, it's massively dangerous. That's actually fairly accurate. Right. No, I'm... <laughs> it's massively dangerous. I just still thought there were a lot of holes in hers that I wasn't like, oh, well, we've got a 100% certain backup, you know, kill switch coming that uh, hers seemed like the weaker of the plan. So if they did get through or didn't get through, I wasn't like That's writing funny. off their actions as non uh, not necessary that's funny I, I sort of felt the exact opposite i was like they're sort of ridiculous and like we're going to march in there with bombs and guns and and we're going to uh kill everybody like that seemed like a last ditch it like they're doing their best like macgyvering sort of plan hers seemed to work like clockwork especially because no one is aware maybe londa knows that she's doing this maybe not it's not entirely clear and like the, the one thing that goes wrong with her plan was something you she could not have predicted. Like, there's... Love. <laughs> you can't predict love. <laughs> love it or rape, one of them. Right, other. yeah. They're just anonymous in German. <laughs> they use the same word, I think. Uh, I, I think it's... No, I think hers was a little more elegant in that 
first off, they walk in with dynamite literally strapped there to their <laughs> legs. And I was like, they didn't really even pat them down. They're like, we don't know you. <laughs> so they literally walk in there with dynamite and timer strapped their legs. And no one pats them down or anything. I feel like that they, if Hitler were going to be there, there would be some security measures. So that that is a little fantastical, whereas hers is a lot more elegant in that even if they search the theater, they're just going to say, there's film here. Yeah, so most usually, people wouldn't know right, that, that it's that it's, dangerous. So, yeah, hers is much more intellectualized, and yet I still felt like it was just random and odd. And, uh, and then, which leads to, I think, the biggest problem of the film, uh, which, well, the biggest problem of the film is that Shoshana's in it. And the end result that is sort of the most glaring is the two plans are both pulled off almost without without flaw, uh, which is exciting. You know, the guys were not really clear how they're going to escape or whatever, and then they, they sort of figure it out And because Landa has his own B plan going on, which is fine. They shoot everybody. They blow themselves up. Fantastic. She burns the building down. They're trapped in there uh, like rats, and they're all going to burn down. Neither plan, either positively or negatively, affected affected each other. They weren't even aware of each other's existence. Right. It's not and like other movies where they tie in together. There's one scene where all the parties come together, realize they're after the same thing, or have this epiphany moment where we're like, oh, that all circular logic comes back together. This was like overkill, literally. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I would have expected at the very least, like, she figured out that they're here to blow something up and so she helps them do something like there's no time at all and so in a sense like earlier i was saying uh tarantino has a way of surprising us and doing things we don't expect that we you know he does things that we haven't seen a million times before and this is th this is definitely something you don't see in movies because it's not good <laughs> right it's not as satisfying and yeah maybe i feel like that if it had been a miniseries or like you were saying it could have been separate storylines and or separate movies like maybe a wacky romantic comedy about a <laughs> nazi guy that just likes a french girl but doesn't know she's, she's jewish you know hey maybe that's got some she's merits. a nazi she's a jew <laughs> right so maybe that would have made a separate a flushed out storyline uh, more entertaining and then i again would have liked this movie to be about the inglorious bastards and scenes like that or christoph waltz character call it colonel lando <laughs> so it doesn't all tie together in the end and then we sort of instantly forget about Shoshana uh, when we go back to Londa uh, riding around in the woods with Brad Pitt and uh, the guy from the office and and I think that's perfectly fine I think it's a it's a good ending they uh, you know Brad Pitt's principle of you're not going to get away with this I think that's sort of uh, a cool uh, bit that he still carves even though this guy essentially ended world war ii he's still not going to get the get, let the guy get away with uh having been a nazi it's almost like uh it's almost rorschach like rorschach the character from watchman not right. rorschach the test <laughs> um he's he's almost like rorschach in that sense that he's not going to give up his principle despite having rescued millions of people What's right is right, even at the end of the world. Yeah, and I, and I think that's sort of it, it, it's a it's an interesting character that they've dealt with because he he's not as articulate as as some other Tarantino characters, and yet he has this sort of principle that is articulated clearly within the film, which I think is great work by Tarantino. And then he carves the swastika into the guy's head, and Brad Pitt looks straight into the camera, says, "This is my masterpiece," 
And Ryan from the office turns to him and nods reassuringly, agreeing with this point. And then we cut to written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, that part stood out as a little <clears throat> self-aggrandizing. A little self-aggrandizing. <laughs> Just that touch. <laughs> it's, it, it, it makes the rest of the, the film references feel self-serving. Well, and uh, more than more than just sort of someone thinking that movies are great, like it's like he's saying, "My movies are great." It's a little much. That is kind of the end-all point of where it does go a bit over the top with his self-referential, self-aggrandizing reflexivity, where he's tongue-in-cheek calling out a lot of these things, or using a film, using film to film about a film killing Hitler. <laughs> Uh, we've been harping on uh, sort of the negative aspects for most of this podcast, but I will say I think this might be my favorite Tarantino movie, and it might be my favorite uh, movie of the last few years, or one of my favorite movies anyways, of that decade. And there are negative parts, but the positive parts, the interrogation scene at the beginning, the bar scene shootout, and then the final uh, negotiation between Brad Pitt and Christoph Waltz and Christoph Waltz is all so great that every time I watch this, I just sort of fast forward through Shoshana. Yeah, I think I definitely think it's a good movie. I think those parts are great. The other parts just distract from it, but I don't know that it's overall great because of some of the distracting elements. It has great parts, but I don't think it's fair to average the film quality out that there is good parts and there's bad parts which averages out to mediocre i think the good parts are good enough that this is a better film than a movie that is mediocre throughout i will agree with that it is a good movie i still give you with great scenes but there are some other scenes that may distract from that yeah why do you say may why do you like may distract in your opinion, when you watch this, <laughs> I, I'm not going to force my opinion on people. That's even though that's what the, the entire L podcast is. That's what a podcast is. That's what my degree is in. Film criticism. I heart. know more about movies than you do, and I'm going to tell you why you are wrong for liking this movie. Right. And yet, sounds like a dick. I'm not a dick. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Ich wollte, ich wäre ein Huhn. Ich hätte nicht viel zu tun. Ich legte vormittags ein Ei.